The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm your uh, interim host today, Tim Foster of the Capital Weekly. Rich Eisen is off camping, so you'll just have to tolerate me as the host this time. And my guest today is a frequent columnist for Capital Weekly, also a lobbyist, uh, educator, author, Chris McKayley. I'm sure he is a name well known to our regular readers and also to our podcast listeners. Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, Tim. It's good to be back. So I thought we would have you on today to talk about some of the, the rules and regulations around the end of session and the way bills become law. You just recently wrote an article for us about the deadlines for getting bills to the governor and when they actually become law. It's confusing. Well, there, I think that's the main reason why I wrote it, uh, because a lot of uh, folks in and around the Capitol uh, are confused about when the bills are subject to a 12-day period of review by the governor and when the 30-day review period starts at the end of session. And if it's different in the odd or first year of this two-year session versus the even or second numbered year. So that's precisely why I do most of these is that uh, there seems to be confusion about some of these types of issues or uh, people ask questions. I get lots of emails and texts or run into colleagues or staffers in the building who ask about some of these legislative process or budget process questions. So that's what often prompts me to do pieces like the 12 versus 30 day period for the gubernatorial review. So can you walk us through the difference between the bills that get a 12 day review and the bills that get the 30 day review and then how all that works? Sure. Well, it's relatively forward because uh, straightforward because the 12 day period applies all the way up until basically the last two weeks of session. (laughs) So, you know, the middle of August, roughly in the even numbered year and the beginning of September, technically 12 days before uh, they adjourn for the year is when the 30 day period. So the rest of the year it's 12 days, but I think that the fundamental misunderstanding uh, that I get quite frequently is when does the 12 days begin? And I think that most people figure that once the bill passes uh, either the second house and there weren't amendments, or of course the house of origin when they concur in amendments is, that that period starts. And it doesn't start then because a bill has to go through the E&E process, engrossing and enrolling process. And then after those two processes are complete, then a bill is presented to the governor, i.e. it is physically delivered by the legislature to the governor's office and that's when the 12 days start counting. And now, do I remember that they traditionally put it inside of a book and take it over to the governor's office? No, what you're thinking about is the jacket over uh, a bill. Uh, and okay. that is, despite everything being 
so electronic today, the legislature still uses a hard copy of the bill that is basically jacketed and the jacket in the over the bill contains signature pages and some other provisions where it notes when the bill passed a particular committee policy fiscal the floor in the house of origin and then in the second house so it's basically a a tracking sheet for lack of a better description that's the jacket got it okay and so when the bill goes to the governor they have 12 days to the minute basically is that correct no it's actually midnight of that 12th day so even if the bill were delivered at nine in the morning or 10 o'clock at night the 12th day expires at midnight it is not an hour uh limitation it's a 12 day and that's that actually not to go a, a field of the current topic but that's one of the sometimes misunderstood aspect of the so-called 72-hour rule where a bill has to be in its final form out in the public domain before the legislature can take that final vote. Some people refer to it as a three-day rule, and the Constitution says 72 hours. That's why the minute that it is eligible, it can be taken up. But this is different. This is 12 days. So it's midnight of that 12th day, Tim. Got it. Okay. So to be clear, if the governor does not act on a bill, so he doesn't veto it, he doesn't sign it, it still becomes law. That's correct? Yes, we have in California what is uh, euphemistically known as the pocket signature rule. So Again, pursuant to the California Constitution, all, all of these, most of these rules are, are found there, some in the government code, and of course, some are uh, in the rules of the legislature, but things like, you know, uh, how a governor must act on a bill, et cetera, et cetera, those are found in the Constitution in Article 4, which deals with the legislative branch and the legislative process. And it says the governor basically has three types of actions. One is the governor can sign a bill, in which case it becomes a statute. Uh, he can veto it, in which case he has to attach a reason, a rationale, an explanation, and return it to the house of origin where they can consider a veto override. Or third, if the governor does not act within the specified time, then that bill shall become a statute. Right. And that does not happen too often, am I right? Yeah, there's only a handful of instances in the eight years that Jerry Brown was governor in the second go around. I wasn't around the first, first time. In the second go around, there were just a few instances. Uh, I remember one was the measure to place an advisory question on the California ballot uh, dealing with the um, U.S. Supreme Court decision and the Citizens United political campaign case. Uh, the governor didn't think the ballot was the place for an advisory 
vote. Uh, so he just let it become law uh, without a signature. And I recall that there was one for then Assemblyman, uh, now I think Supervisor Das Williams in Santa Barbara County. It dealt with a bill specific to Santa Barbara County, and he let it become law without a signature. So it's really a handful of times that a governor, uh, you know, does that because, you know, that's what they're there to do. Uh, that's part of the job, obviously, is signing or vetoing bills that are passed by the legislature. Yeah, and I do remember there was a case where the governor and his office took their eyes off the ball. And I think about a half a dozen uh, laws became law. Half a dozen uh, legislative acts became law. Yeah, that was uh, Governor Wilson's tenure. And there were five bills, as I understand it, obviously not having been personally involved, but as I understand it secondhand, uh, the photocopier was busier out of service in the governor's first floor office. So the staffer there uh, brought up five bills uh, and the veto messages to photocopy them upstairs with one of the legislative uh, uh, photocopiers and unfortunately left them there. Uh, I believe this was the last day to act. And so those five veto messages uh, and the bills were not returned in time. And so they became law without the governor's signature. And as you might imagine, the governor said, uh, I would like you, the legislature, to send me bills to repeal those laws because clearly I had intended to veto them and they politely declined to do so. You mean they didn't implement his vision? Is that what you're telling me? Well, this was not Gray Davis. This was <laughs> under Governor Wilson. It wasn't until Gray Davis yeah. uh, came into office that he expressed his view of the role of the legislature. Yes. Um, yeah. So the legislature, in a bipartisan manner, decided that they were not there to implement any governor's vision uh, on either party. So, yes. Well, uh, okay. So that's the 12 day rule. So let's move on to the 30-day rule and, and how that happened. And that happens at the very end of session, correct? Yeah, basically, if you count backwards for the, from the adjournment date, if a bill hasn't been presented by, you know, effectively 11 days out, then uh, it falls into that 30-day period. So, yes, there are some bills that if we're, they weren't acted on until – 30 days after adjournment, and uh, they had, um, you know, come in with, say, 10 days left before they adjourned, that bill could actually get 40 days of consideration. <laughs> but the whole idea with that is that they recognize the people because, you know, this was an amendment to the Constitution to provide this time period. The recognition that there were potentially in excess of a thousand bills, certainly in the high hundreds every year, except the COVID year, the first COVID year, when the governor has a lot to consider. Uh, they also recognize that the legislature has to process hundreds of bills. Uh, you know, they don't all arrive. People are often surprised 
that some of those bills don't get down to the governor until the middle of the 30 days, uh, just because they have to go through, again, those formalities of engrossing and enrolling, essentially reviewing that all the amendments that were supposed to have been met were made um, and some some tech, they're basically a technical review by the legislature, both the assembly and the Senate, Tim, have what they call the engrossing and enrolling unit. And these are my terminology, uh, expert proofreaders, making sure again that there aren't typos, that the amendments that were adopted each step of the way are in fact reflected in the bill, et cetera. Anyways, that can take a long, a number of days, up to two weeks after adjournment before they're able to do that. As you know, in the last week of session, they may be sending six, 800 bills down to the governor. So those processes do not happen overnight naturally. So here's a question for you. Do they, do those proofreaders make mistakes? Can you think of cases where an amendment was not properly recorded or, or things didn't actually go the way they were supposed that to? That I haven't seen, but there are, there have been, there are typos that make it into the statute uh, and they hopefully get picked up, you know, when they're amending that code section again, or maybe in a code cleanup bill that every once in a while, some of the committees like a judiciary committee will make. So it it happens. I mean, it's surprising because, you know, these things go through, pass by a lot of eyes, you know, with the bill drafters, the committees and on the floors and outside interest groups, as you know, weigh in on these bills, Tim, both in support and opposition. But do typos get into statutes in California? Yes, every once in a while they do. Anyways, so that's the fundamental purpose of the 30 days. Uh, and note that the 30 days kicks in in the first year after they adjourn. So this year, 2023, first year of the two-year session, they are scheduled, they, the legislature, of course, are scheduled to adjourn on Thursday, uh, September the 14th. Now, Assuming they end on the 14th, then the governor has 30 days from then. If they adjourn in the wee hours of the 15th, then the 30 starts there. Note, however, again, Tim, pursuant to the Constitution, in the even-numbered year, the second year, which of course will be next year, when the legislature is scheduled by the Constitution to adjourn August 31st, uh, in the Constitution, it says the governor has until September 30th. So that's a hard deadline. So whether the 30th falls on a Saturday, a Sunday, a Monday, a Tuesday, whatever, he has until September 30th in the even-numbered year, which is basically 30 days, obviously. Right. So do you have any uh, sense of why? I mean, you mentioned that they had added an amendment to give the governor 30 days in recognition of the fact that there was just so much going on at the end yeah. of the session there. Uh, was this all based on the United States constitution or just based on other states or how did the original whole process get set up? Do you have any background on that, on why it was set up this way? No, not, not any particular insight. The 
Uh, it's actually shorter for the president, but you know, again, it's a and there isn't anything special because uh, beyond the one date with the at the federal level because Congress, you know, is arguably in session all the time during the two-year period with extensive breaks like July 4th and Easter break. Uh, you know, the legislature is off for the 4th. The Congress is usually off for two weeks. The legislature is off for a week at uh, uh, spring break and the Congress is, is at least two weeks, et cetera. So they don't have the hard and fast constitutional deadline for adjournment, et cetera. And so, you know, the president doesn't need that 30 day where potentially hundreds of bills come come down. The other thing is, is that uh, an interesting factoid about 40 percent of the introduced bills. I use round numbers. Twenty five hundred bills get introduced. About a thousand get down to the governor's desk and about eight hundred, eight fifty get signed. So in California, about 40% of the introduced bills get signed into law each and every year. Uh, there are some high points and low points, of course. Uh, at one point, uh, Jerry Brown in his uh, first tenure, uh, first eight years, he signed uh, or he vetoed single digits, like 5% or less. The highest number of vetoed were, was about 35% uh, by Arnold Schwarzenegger. At the federal level, between three and five percent of the introduced bills get enacted. Again, forty percent in California, about three to five percent at the federal level. So again, there wow. just isn't the volume at the federal level that that thirty-day requirement would be necessitated at the federal level. Now, this may be a question out of your wheelhouse, but how does California compare to other states? Do I mean, do most states enact 40% of the legislation that actually goes? goes I have not compared and contrasted the introduced versus the enacted. I have looked at other, what other states enact, uh, as well as some bill limits in other states, which in some states are single digits. As you know, in the assembly, it's 50 for the two-year term and it's 40 in the Senate for the two-year term. Um but most states, you know, enact fewer than 100 new laws a year. Some of the bigger states and the more full-time-ish states, you know, Michigan, New York, Illinois, Florida, Texas, they're definitely in the four or five. But I, as I recall, it's been a few years, Tim, that I looked at these definitely pre-COVID. Like the next highest state was in the six, 650 range of new laws. Whereas again, California's 850 plus, give or take. Last year, the governor signed uh, almost 1,100 new laws. So, wow, no, that, no one else, no one else is close to California. Let's put it that way. And that's 1,100 has got to be pretty close to the high water mark. Is that correct? Well, to be fair, during uh, bill limit time, yes, but uh, bill limits didn't come in until like the mid to late 80s in California. So prior to that, there were 2,000, 1,500 new laws easily most years. So wow. we did have more. We did have more. 
Interesting. I, I don't think anyone wants to go back to that time, Tim, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, what is it? The Trey Brown's era of limits. Sounds like he wasn't really very limited, um, at least on his first go round. Well, I, I appreciated, um, I think it was roughly the first year that he returned. So the first year of his second eight years in office. And I recall something like he had signed maybe 700 ish bills. And I think the quote that got a lot of attention when he finished was along the lines of, I don't think that there are, you know, I don't know what it was. It was something like that 800 problems need a bill or, you know, basically saying that he didn't think, you know, there were 700, there was a need for 700 bills. And then in his last year, he signed like 800. So, you know, even though he acknowledged or said, we don't need that many when he first got there, I guess after, you know, seven more years dealing with the legislature, he was a go along, get along kind of person in the end, you know. Well, he certainly had changed uh, quite a bit over the, you know, the generation between his first and second uh, go round in the governor's office. Well, definitely when it comes to his veto rate, much higher in his second eight years than in his first eight years. Well, and the irony there is that I'm, you know, he had a much more democratic legislature at the end than he had uh, in the earlier days. Yeah, but I also think that he also acknowledged more than once that, you know, he, you know, he, uh, you know, his, his canoe paddling example, you know, paddle a little on the left and a little on the right. And I think he was more moderate and more uh, centric in his second gubernatorial tenure than the first go around. And I think that means that he often, you know, found that, so the legislature might have been too liberal or progressive for his uh, in his mind. So, yeah, he's also I, I have to say, I think Governor Brown was our most quotable governor. <laughs> the, the canoe paddling is only one of many. Uh, oh, sure. Quotes. Yes, but I don't know. I think our current governor, Governor Newsom, definitely has his, you know, what was that? His big, hairy, ostentatious. I mean, he's had. I think some in the Capitol press corps have, you know, latched on to a few of his uh, vocabulary uh, words that he's used in press conferences or, you know, when he's presenting the budget or the state of the state, they've uh, grabbed on to some of his uh, his vocabulary from time I, to time, too. Yes. And I do remember seeing floating around, I think it was on Twitter, uh, a bingo card with uh Governor Newsom's. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he'll, you know, he's got, he's not going to be in office as long as Brown, but, uh, but we'll see if his, if he'll be known as a quotable quote. (laughs) Yeah. So to move away from what we've been talking about, something I wanted to ask you about, I noticed on your bio that you are listed as an expert on California knife law. And I think that's interesting. Can you, can you talk about how you ended up being a, a court recognized California expert on California knife law. I mean, does this mean that you're out there, uh, you know, throwing, throwing knives at, uh, at folks pinned to targets and, you know, definitely what is, not what that all about. Definitely not. I have well, a, at least not yet. Yeah, no, I have a small collection over the years and some were given as, as gifts from uh, clients, you know, 
When I first started lobbying, my first lobbying job was for the then California Manufacturers Association. We called ourselves the other CMA as distinguished from the Medical Association. It was after I left that they added the end technology and, of course, our CMTA today. Anyways, when I was brought on board um, as a young lawyer, I was initially hired to do all their revenue and taxation kind of budget-related lobbying and then um, quickly got added the legal reform, everything that goes before the Judiciary Committees. Anyways, we had two policy committees at the time. One, of course, was tax uh, that I ran. And then the second was, we called it the Corporate Counsel Committee. So it was basically general counsels from, you know, different manufacturers, right? I mean, some everyday names and lots of smaller, obscure ones they had probably seven, 800 members at the time. I don't know what their membership is today. Um, still large, I'm sure. But one of them was the general counsel of Buck Knives, a major knife manufacturer. And back 20 years ago, they were headquartered in El Cajon, you know, down in San Diego County. And they ultimately, a few years uh, later, actually moved to Idaho, unfortunately, due to what their founder and CEO, I, I'm sorry, he was like third generation, but the family, the Buck family uh, founded them. And I think employed at that time, maybe three or 400 people, you know, uh, they're still one of the major knife manufacturers. Anyways, they and all the other manufacturers uh, had at the time and still have today, what they call folders or one-handed opening knives. So if you go to, you know, whatever, a big five or a store that, you know, sells hunting gear or whatnot, and even law enforcement uses it, even EMTs, because they have different blades, like the EMTs have like a serrated, edge. I remember at the time they said, yeah, uh, EMTs and paramedics carry them on their belt because they can like cut a seat belt and other things, right? Law enforcement uses it, etc. Anyways, they, if you look at them, they have either a thumb stud or a hole in the blade, which allows you to open them with one hand. And there's obviously public safety value EMT, but also other utilitarian purposes. I mean, you know, whether you're fishing or hunting or doing other things and might need only have one available hand to open that knife. So there's that benefit. Anyways, California has a switchblade law and the definition of a switchblade was so broad that law enforcement, that is police officers on the street, sheriffs on the street, were arresting people carrying these types of knives. And of course, the manufacturers said, holy cow, if our customers are being arrested for carrying these knives that you can, again, buy at Big Five or whatever, we'll have to stop selling them and you know go out of business potentially. So uh, I had gone into contract lobbying by this time. And so the general counsel of Buck Knives called me up and she said, explain what I've just 
explain to you, Tim. And so I found a bill author um, and it was a Democrat state senator from the Long Beach area and worked with her to introduce the bill. But then I had to go to the California District Attorneys Association, CDAA, the California State Sheriff's Association and the California Police Chiefs Association. So dealing with law enforcement and talked to them. And basically, we negotiated the language to allow these types of one-handed opening knives to be lawful if they met certain conditions, which we put in statute. Anyways, maybe two years after, I get a call from a public defender's office here in Sacramento County, and they said, hey, I got your name from the senator's office who had authored this bill. We're trying to understand this, and our client got arrested for having one of these knives. It was from a different maker, maybe Spyderco or somebody like that. And I said, well, I'll have to see the knife and handle it because the language is very specific in the statute that it has to comply with. That's the only way you can distinguish between an unlawful switchblade and a lawful one-handed opener or folder. So I went down to Sac Superior Court and met with the public defender. And I said, no, this knife definitely meets the exemption and therefore it's not a switchblade. And he said, well, we want you to testify in this case. So I was called in and talked about my background and how I got involved with this and my role. And so ultimately, the Sacramento Superior Court judge said, you are qualified as an expert witness. And after that, I got, I flew down to Orange County like twice and some other courts. And, you know, in all the instances where I testified, you know, the defendant was found to have had a lawful knife. Um, and so that's basically what transpired. So that's how I became a qualified expert witness in several uh, California superior courts uh, on the knife that the switchblade law. Ultimately, we amended a second statute also for the purpose of protecting people having these types of knives. Uh, we have a statute, Tim, called the Dirk or Dagger statute. And so some law enforcement officials were uh, arresting people for having one-handed folders uh, under the Dirk or Dagger statute, which as you can imagine, sounds bad. Those are prohibited in California law. So we tweaked that one. Uh, and so that's how I got involved in California knife laws and the penal code. And thankfully, I'm not a regular at the public safety committees, but I got to tell you, I have some fascinating stories for another day. Both of those bills, after passing out of the assembly, both of them failed passage in the Senate Public Safety Committee. I got them reconsidered and ultimately found one more vote to pass. And then one other funny thing is, without naming names as well, that uh, one of the governor's legislative unit staffers, because they asked for some sample knives, what would be illegal and what would be legal. So I remember coming downtown and meeting uh, one of the ledge unit staffers outside the Capitol on a Sunday afternoon, so, sorry, Saturday afternoon. Anyways, long story short, I found out after the fact 
one of his staffers was playing with the knives and cut himself. And I thought, oh, God, that hopefully he won't veto it. But ultimately, it got signed anyways. So you had to bring in illegal versions of life. What did you go down to Tijuana and buy a switchblade? <laughs> no, fortunately, I got them from law enforcement because we actually brought them uh, to one of the committee hearings. And, uh, you know, in a manila envelope and brought him into the hearing room and then the assembly or senate sergeant you know wanted to be very close to them because he didn't want anyone to you know like inadvertently take one and stab a legislator or something crazy (laughs) that would be that would not be a good look (laughs) no no that would not be good well thank you so much for coming on and, and explaining uh what happens at the end of session and how how bills become law you know sure and you're able to talk about the actual statutory rules and the things that are supposed to govern all this uh, and that we're all supposed to know and that, frankly, so many people don't know. So, it's Well, as, as, you, as you're familiar with, Tim, I, a lot of the language, certainly of our Constitution, let alone the government code and, gosh, even some of the legislature's rules um, are sometimes confusing or at least not clear and you know, a lot of these things I've personally experienced sometimes multiple times. And so I've tried to share those personal insights because, again, I've experienced that. I've made the same mistakes. Uh, I've misunderstood these things like lots of other people. And now that some of these things are more clear to me, I've tried to share that clarity with others anyways. And thanks Thanks for having me today. All right. Thank you so much, Chris McKaylee of Apreya and McKaylee for walking us through those processes. And I'm sure we will have him on again soon. And now I'm going to turn solo to everyone's favorite part of the Capital Weekly podcast, who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And I think we have a pretty clear winner this week. Uh, Clarissa Cervantes a Riverside City Council member was arrested for a DUI. Now that's never good for a politician or anyone else. It is particularly bad because it is her second DUI arrest in eight years and was only six weeks after her previous DUI was dismissed by a judge. And she is currently running for a seat in the California State Assembly this is not going to help that. Uh, she had offered a very seemingly heartfelt mea culpa for her earlier DUI, said it was the worst decision of her life, was uh, never going to do anything like that, that again. And here we are uh, six weeks later, and she has now been arrested a second time for a DUI. So I think that's a pretty clear worst week in California politics. All right. And I think that'll take us to the end. Thanks so much for listening. We'll both be back. Rich will be back from his camping trip next week, and we will uh, talk to you then. Bye-bye. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.